When the pastors met on Wednesday morning, our first time together this week, we spent some time in prayer and then talked about the service this morning and realized that perhaps it would be best to change things up a little bit. And so after one song of worship, we are now going to the Word, and then afterwards we will have an extended time of worshipful and prayerful response led by our worship team and Pastor Danny. It is an inexplicable joy to be able to bring God's Word this morning. Throughout this entire week, God's grace has been sufficient every step of the way, and He has provided for our entire church family exactly what we have needed in every moment, and that is what He promises to do. And I believe that He has directed in where to go in His Word this morning. That direction came in some way from working so long with Pastor Mitchell, who probably would have said, just do the series. If you believe the Word of God is sufficient, then let the Word of God suffice for this situation. Um, but really, it came uh, on Monday in particular. We were standing around uh, waiting for them to come and to take Pastor Mitchell and one of those in the circle said, it looked like he saw Jesus coming. And then our dear sister Beth, whom I talked with ahead of time about sharing this story, she whispered, I will receive you unto myself. And so we read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and we had a time of prayer together, and that is our passage for this morning. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus gives us a command here to believe, or to trust, to trust in God and to trust in Him. And in troubled times, we can trust Jesus because He promises to give us everything that we need for life and for godliness. It's kind of an unexpected command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I can imagine if I were one of the disciples there that evening thinking to myself, what? <laughs> Again, we can't just take a chapter of the Bible and start with verse 1 without remembering what led up to it, without, without remembering what happened in John chapter 13, without, without remembering what happened in the other uh, weeks and months leading up to this occasion. Jesus had warned His disciples already on three different occasions that they were going to Jerusalem and that the Son of Man would be turned over to His enemies, that He would suffer many things at their, at their hands, that He must be killed and then raised again on the third day. Now, the message we know didn't really get through to them, 
but they certainly understood that a catastrophic, life-changing event was around the corner. And here Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. Now, in, in chapter 13, he had just told them as part of this same conversation, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Here you have this group that had followed Jesus so closely, and he told them that one of them was going to be a traitor, was going to turn his back, was going to turn Jesus over, was actually not even to be counted among the redeemed. That's the kind of news that rocks a group of people, and, and the murmurs went among them. Who is it? What do you think he means? Then, when Peter said, I'm ready to follow you anywhere. Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus said, really? Actually, Peter, before the rooster crows, in other words, by the time the night is over, you are going to deny me three times. It is to these men who had just received from him such distressing news that Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. And they're probably thinking, that's fine for you to say. You're Jesus, but what about us? How do we handle this? It's important to understand, actually, that Jesus understands. It's not just in Isaiah 53 that we know that Jesus is a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. We see it in his own life as he walked the earth. The disciples saw it just a few days earlier as they were entering into Jerusalem, and he wept. He wept over that city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a people who were so hard-hearted and turned against him. And he mourned the sad state of that people and that city. They had seen it as well, or they were going to see it as well in the garden as Jesus is approaching the cross. And he is experiencing such distress and consternation and intensity in prayer that his drops of sweat are like blood flowing from him. Jesus is a man who knew and understood distress. In fact, it's almost ironic to realize that this very word, troubled, when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, this very word appears in the previous three chapters of the book of John, and it all has to do with Jesus himself. As Jesus was standing beside the grave of his friend Lazarus, he was troubled. And then in chapter 12, as he was contemplating the events of the cross that were approaching, he was troubled. And then in chapter 13, as he was about to share with them about Judas's betrayal, Jesus was troubled. He is not telling them that distress of the heart is a sinful state. It's something that we should never experience. In fact, quite the opposite we understand very clearly and we must get a hold of the fact that Jesus was entirely human. 
that he doesn't merely reach into our human experience and try and pull us out to something better. He entered entirely into our human experience. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tested, that he was tempted in every way as we are. If you're going through it, Jesus has felt it. The only difference is that he was without sin. The author of Hebrews then goes on to explain, this is why we have a sympathetic high priest. He suffered as we suffered, and so he understands what we are going through. He entered into our situation, and so he is tender towards us in our human weakness. When he tells us, don't be troubled, he is not condemning, but he is exhorting. And it does help to know at this point, actually, that the grammar of the command there indicates not continuing in a certain state or bringing a, a state to an end. So certainly, at various points in our life, our hearts are going to be troubled and deeply troubled. But we don't have to continue in that indefinitely. That can come to an end. Let's look for a second at what particular troubles Jesus underlines that the disciples are dealing with and then how he tells them that they can uh, overcome. In reading through the Upper Room Discourse, there are actually a lot of things that you could say, wow, that might be tough. Okay, that can be difficult. But John underlines, he emphasizes three particular difficulties that the disciples are going to go through. It's underlined actually by Jesus, who says after each one of things, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you will remember and you'll believe in me, you'll understand what's going on. Three different times he told the disciples, I'm telling you something, this is going to happen. When it happens, remember, this is not catching anybody by surprise, and it's gonna be okay because you can trust in me. The first one actually was the betrayal. The disciples had already heard these words in John chapter 13, when he was about to talk about Judas betraying him, Jesus said, I've got something to tell you. Listen to me and remember when it happens that I was not caught by surprise. This was distressing news. These men had been together for three years, day in and day out, traveling, eating, celebrating, weeping, in trouble, uh, in, in uh, joyful uh, witness of the power of the Word of God at work among them. It's the type of situation that binds a group of people together very closely. They had become a band of brothers in many ways. And Judas was a trusted member of that group. He was so trusted that he was the one who had the money back. He took care of the money for all of them. Somebody needed to buy bread, Judas had the money for the bread. Somebody needed to help the poor, Judas had the money to help the poor. 
And here he was about to betray not only them, but Jesus himself, and to betray Jesus to death. That's the type of deep, internal, turmoil-causing, life-changing distress that the disciples were about to experience. Another thing that Jesus underlines is his departure from them and the fact that he would be absent, that he would no longer be with them. This is about to happen when it happens. Don't be surprised by it, and don't forget that you can trust in me. Jesus was their leader. I think a lot of times, at least I know that I have looked back on the upper room discourse and have viewed it as, viewed it from the perspective of someone who's already read the Great Commission and who already knows about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. But if we step back into where the disciples are in that upper room, Jesus hasn't told them what to do. Jesus hasn't explained to them how they're going to be able to continue. They've followed him faithfully every step along the way. He has provided for needs by multiplying bread. He has protected them from harm by calming the wind and the waves. And they're like, who's going to do that now? They don't know what it means to be without Jesus, and yet he has told them that he's going to leave them on their own. And then the third one that he prepares them for is the hatred of the world. Persecution is coming. When it happens, remember, I told you, it's going to be okay. You can trust in me. He describes this persecution on multiple occasions in the upper room. He talks specifically about hatred. The hatred that he himself would experience at the hands of the world is the hatred that the disciples would experience. Do you remember last week we talked about the idea of being put out of the synagogue, cut off from familial and social uh, business, uh, from everything that you know, entirely ostracized from a society. Jesus said that they would be put out of the synagogue. In fact, Jesus said that they are going to kill you and think they're doing a service to God when they put you to death. So these are the deep troubles that Jesus is describing for the disciples. And then he tells them, do not continue to be troubled. Trust in God. And trust also in me. The parallel of those phrases indicates something to us, I believe. First of all, it indicates a firm foundation that we have. Trusting in God was nothing new for the disciples. They were born right there among the Jewish people. They grew up in a culture and society that was entirely founded upon trust in God, in believing that God exists and believing that he is active among their people. Their history is bound up with the acts of God. Their identity is entirely built around the concept of God. Their culture is permeated with faith in God. 
They had heard the stories from childhood of God acting on behalf of their people. A foundation for the disciples was the understanding that God exists and he acts on behalf of his people. But Jesus adds something that is stretching. Trust in God, but trust also in me. The disciples are still in a process. We tend to look at their early statements of faith in God and think, okay, that's a static reality. But they go back and forth. It's only a few verses later that one of the disciples said, okay, now I finally understand and believe. And Jesus says, really? (laughs) They're growing in this new thing that it means to trust in Jesus. All of their lives to this point, they had been told that no human can make himself can call himself God's son or equal with God. And here Jesus was doing that. And they were like, okay, we we actually see that and we believe that, but that's new and that's difficult. And sometimes, John chapter 6 in particular, Jesus would say hard things. He said things that drove people away from him. And they're thinking, "That, that doesn't really jive with everything I ever been told, but here you are, and you're Jesus, and you're telling me this, so okay, I'm going to go with that. But he's constantly stretching the disciples. He's constantly testing their faith and pushing them in their faith. He tells them that they have to leave everything behind. He tells them that they have to die daily and take up their cross. He tells them that now he's going to leave them, but you can keep trusting in me. It's going to be hard, but you can keep trusting in me. And haven't we been stretched over this last week? It's hard to believe that last Sunday's message was John chapter 10, Jesus is a Savior that you can trust. And he says, okay, here's the next thing you can trust me with. And he's going to keep stretching us. He's going to keep challenging us until the day that we meet him. Jesus says, trust in me. It's so important. You can't trust your circumstances. He made that clear to the disciples. The circumstances are going to change entirely. You can't trust in people. He's made that clear. As much as you trust someone, there's always the chance that they can let you down. People will always fail. All the way back to the psalmist saying, some people trust in armies and chariots and horses. I trust the Lord. Pastor Mitchell would be the very first one to say, don't trust in me, trust in Jesus. He would be the very first one to direct our focus on Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, who is unfailing, who keeps all of his promises. He is the one that we can trust. And Jesus outlines for the disciples, in light of these particular dangers and distresses that they are about to undergo, How can you put trust into action? And the first one is love. Do you remember earlier in chapter 
13, the very direct connection between the love of Christ and what He was about to undergo. Having loved His own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. And then in the very next verse, John talks about the betrayal of Judas. Then after Jesus outlines the betrayal and outlines Peter's denial, He tells the disciples, a new command I give you, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. In this way, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The kind of betrayal that Judas was about to perpetrate is the kind of thing that can tear a group apart. The kind of loss that the disciples were about to experience is the kind of thing that can scatter a flock. Relationships can be characterized by second-guessing, by doubting, oh, are you going to do that too? Can I really trust you? What is it that that person's thinking? What are they trying to accomplish? Who's got what agenda? Jesus says, I know all about Judas, and I'm washing his feet, and I love him to the end. You love one another. That is the antidote for this sort of danger and distress that can arise, to continue in the love of Jesus Christ in demonstrating that to each other so that the whole world can look and see, I can't believe what they've gone through, but look how they love one another. They really were followers. They really are followers of Jesus Christ. The second thing that Jesus gives them so that they can put trust into action is the Holy Spirit. At one point, Jesus has been making it very clear that he is leaving them, but then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, that might be really confusing for the disciples at this point. I mean, he has said, I am going away. You're going to look for me. You won't be able to find me. The world's going to look for me. They won't be able to find me. I am leaving you. But I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he goes on to say that what he's talking about is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit among us. The Holy Spirit would come and the, and the rest of this passage, of these chapters, is just filled with the Holy Spirit. The comfort that the Holy Spirit brings. The guidance that the Holy Spirit brings. He will guide you into all truth the power for ministry that the Holy Spirit brings. But more than anything else, the very presence of Jesus Christ among us because the Holy Spirit is among us. Yes, in some ways, disciples, you're not going to see me, and so there's going to be times that you feel abandoned and alone, but you are not alone I am still here because the Holy Spirit is among you. Trust me with what is to come, 
because actually I'm still with you. The other thing that he gives the disciples so that they can put their trust into action is the promise, the absolute confidence that he has overcome, that he is the victor. When he's talking with them about persecution, he then says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Sometimes in the midst of our life circumstances with the difficulties and the challenges and the attacks and the losses and the grief and the trouble, we can feel overwhelmed. But in contrast to that sense of overwhelming, Jesus gives us overcoming. Take heart, I've overcome the world. You can trust in me in those difficult circumstances. And then the last thing to mention is, is right here in this very passage, the beginning of John 14, and that is the promise of his return. And it's expressed to us in such very intimate terms. In other places in scriptures, we read about the glory of the return of Christ to earth. But in this place, we're talking about the very personal return for each individual who trusts in Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself personally, lovingly, unfailingly, Jesus will come for every one of his own. And so when we're going through the trials, when we're going through the griefs, when we're going through the losses, when the trouble seems overwhelming, there is an unshakable promise, a certain hope, that Jesus is at the end of that road to receive us to himself. We have to point out that these promises are for those who know him. Jesus concludes this little paragraph by saying, you know the way to the place where I'm going. One of the disciples says, how can we know? How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. You know the way because you know me. These beautiful promises are for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that the Lord Jesus Christ would open was the way of the cross. What follows after this upper room discourse we know very well. It's Jesus going to the cross for my sin and for yours. It's Jesus who said, there's going to be a way, himself making the way. It's Jesus who said, I want to come back and take you to be with me, who first says, I want to take your sin. I want to take the punishment and the death that you deserve. And he bore that on the cross in our place so that we, believing in him, could receive forgiveness and life and hope 
and a future. Pondering this further this morning, six lessons came to mind, and they're right from here, because indeed the Scripture is sufficient. These are six things for us now. The first one that is that it is okay to grieve, but let's grieve well. Jesus didn't say, never be troubled. He himself wept. He said, you don't have to get bogged down in it and continue in it. You can live a life of faith. I think the Apostle Paul is talking about that same idea when he talks about how blessed it is for us to be able to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. There's the kind of grieving that is lost. I don't understand. I have no idea how can this possibly be and what is going to happen in the future period. We've been to the funeral services where all there is is talk about what a great lady so-and-so was, and entirely devoid of the gospel, and entirely devoid of future hope, entirely devoid of the kind of rejoicing that we have been able to do. Yes, we grieve, but we grieve differently because we have hope. And that's why we can not let our hearts be troubled. Let's weep, but let's rejoice as well. Second thing, God is on our side. This is my devotional Psalter. I think all the staff members have one, a gift from Mitchell Gregory. This morning I read Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would surely have been swallowed up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would surely have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. And over us would have gone the raging waters. But blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. Believe in God. If it were not for Him, we'd be lost, overwhelmed. The waters rage, but He's with us, and He lifts us up, and He carries us through, and we can overcome. Third, Jesus is still here, and He's the Lord of the church. I say to you, you are Peter, a rock, and on this rock, I, Jesus, will build my church, and the gates of hell even will not overcome it. 
Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He's the one who protects and guards and guides the church. He's the chief chief shepherd. He's the one that we can trust, and He's the one who will be with us always. So let's trust our church to Jesus. Fourth, the Holy Spirit will guide us. Every one of us has asked questions, what's next? Praying is next. Jesus said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that he's going to do is guide you. So let's pray for God's guidance for our church. Pray for your elders. Pray for the district superintendent. He's involved in the process of church leadership. Pray for each other. And let's lean on the Holy Spirit for guidance. We don't have to be in a hurry about that. Trust in God. Trust also in me, Jesus says. I will give you a comforter and a counselor, and he is with you. In the meantime, you've got four pastors, you've got nine elders, we have each other. Let's turn to each other and receive the ministry of the Lord from each other. And that brings us to the fifth point. The Holy Spirit will use us. Right now, He already is. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to use us in our particular ways of giftedness. And that goes on. It was really odd. A lot of people talked about it, walking into church this morning. How long has Cary Alliance Church been associated with Mitchell Gregory? And it felt like everything's different. But you know, the first person, and please forgive me, I'm using your names just because I love you so much. And I could use a million other names. <laughs> first person I saw was Robin Orton carrying chairs into the nursery to make sure the nursery was set up. And the second person was Andrew Needham, and we talked about the slides for this morning and made sure everything was in order. And then Robert and Jean Coates setting up the coffee bar. And of course, we talked, each one of us. I'm still grieving, but you know what? They were doing what God has gifted them to do for the ministry of the body and the encouragement of the body and the building up of the saints. And as we continue to minister, as the Holy Spirit has enabled us, God will work. Then the worship team came in, and the Sunday school teachers. Later on, a needy couple came in, and God provided just the right people to sit with them and talk with them and discern the situation. The Holy Spirit is among us. Let Him use us to minister to each other in this time of need. And then the sixth lesson is that the road leads home. If you haven't watched Pastor Mitchell's blog, video blog from a couple of years ago on these very verses, it's quite different than this one. He speaks of the, the glories and the beauty of heaven and the Savior who will accompany us there.
we don't have to be overwhelmed because we know with absolute certainty where the road leads. For every one of us who believes in the name of Jesus, that road leads straight to him. Let's rejoice in that and hang on to that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your grace, which is sufficient for each day. And sometimes we wonder, is there going to be enough to get through? But there always is. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's good. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are perfect. That even when we don't understand your ways, we can trust in your ways. Thank you that your intentions toward us are for the good. And even when it feels like we're being stretched beyond what we can bear, you provide what is needed to keep following you day by day. Lord, we want to keep following you. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you that along with the Holy Spirit, we receive love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thank you that along with your Spirit, we receive power for ministry the ability to serve, the comfort that we need. Even when we don't know how to pray, you pray through us. Father, these gifts are from you to walk with us day by day. Help us to claim them, to make them our own. Fill us up and use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.